And then, you know, they came out with a new version of the HP specs back a couple of years ago, and it took them like five years to rewrite them. And the end result is now HP pretty much is identical to the way it was in 1998. Like there's been a few <laughs> clarifications, but it just doesn't change, which in the tech industry is just delightful because your knowledge doesn't become out of date. to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. On the show this week is the legendary Daryl Miller. How you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. I'm a little shocked by that intro, but I'll get over it. <laughs> Your facial expressions are gold, Daryl. <laughs> uh, well, so it occurs to me I don't have a bio for you, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, for the vast majority of my career, I've been a software developer, but uh, recently joining this team, I have entered the land of being a program manager. Um, so... Yep, I've been doing software development in the world of Linus business applications for many years. And uh, more recently, when I joined Microsoft, I joined the Azure API management team. So I was doing development work there. Oh, so you were a dev there, you weren't a PM. Oh, yeah. So you worked with Vlad, but you were on the engineering side. Yes. I didn't know that. Actually, when I started, um, I joined the team as an evangelist. so I was uh, on contract as an evangelist for the first six months. So then uh, that contract ended and I had a few options and one of them was being a dev. And uh, I decided to give that a shot. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. There you go. And your accent is as nearly as jacked up as mine. So how did that happen? Well, I was, I was born in the delightful northwest of England. And uh, lasted there until end of high school. And then I moved over to Montreal and I've spent the rest of my time being a resident of uh, the province of Quebec. That's awesome. And you speak French? I can get by in French. Yes, my petty poor. I I did. (laughs) I worked um, in a consulting company for a couple of years, where a lot of conversation was, or a lot of meetings and stuff happened in French, and I got a lot better during that time. But it's been I've I've worked from home for the last twenty years, so my interactions with the outside world tend to uh, (laughs) be pretty much limited to the internet, and seeing people face to face is less often. So my French has deteriorated. So how did you get started in computers? Um, well, I, I think I'm fairly similar to quite a few of your guests. It was one of those, I was a young kid, I played too many video arcades, and my parents kind of said, this money's going down the, the drain, we should do something about this. So we ended up buying a computer back in England, a BBC Micro, and it was kind of love at first sight and I've been writing software ever since although I had a little what I call my dark period when I moved over to the US and I had to sell my Beeb and I got a an IBM PC and I looked at the basics that were running on the IBM PC and went these are horrible I mean the BBC basic was just delightful to work with and when you looked at basic R and 
he was at GW Basic, I think, that time. I had this little IBM XT with a 20 megabyte hard drive on it. And, uh, you had a hard drive? Wow, I had dual flappies on uh, my first yeah, one. Yeah, I had a hard drive. <laughs> then I discovered the, 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 the big advantage of North America was the uh, free local calling, which didn't exist in England. So I discovered the, the joys of modem. And I had a 1200 board modem and started calling up BBSs and downloading software. So it was a few years before I got back into development. When I went to university, I got uh, Turbo Pascal. Uh, Turbo Pascal 5.5 and learned object-oriented development from that little third book that they shipped with the Turbo Pascal manual. And uh, from there, I, I mean, I did uh, some C and C++ and a little bit of Lisp in university. And then when I left university, well, I met my wife in university. We both went through computer engineering and she convinced me to go help her dad's company and we ended up writing software using Clipper and then Foxpro and and I spent a few years in Visual Foxpro and <laughs> then I went and worked for a time and attendance company doing payroll and time and attendance and then that's when my wife and I decided to start out on our own and we built our own software and sold that for many years writing in VB6 SQL Server and uh, yeah and done a bunch of consulting uh, work over the years, but uh, yeah, that's... where did your passion for HTTP APIs oh. come into play? Did you oh. notice that, Daryl? So that <laughs> that was that was around about two thousand five, two thousand six. Uh, we were this enterprise software we were building helps to run manufacturing companies and stuff. And one of the things that we would sort of been asked to do was do punch clocks. So have some kind of device out on the shop floor. And we were playing around with Windows CE devices. We bought this really early Windows CE embedded device. And then we bought a bigger one that was Windows embedded. Mm -hmm. And it got into this, well, we need to do, we need some logic on the client and we need some logic on the server. So we need to start building a distributed thing because previously with like VB6 and SQL Server, like really all your code's on the client. You're just making database requests, SQL requests across. So there's no real logic other than stored procedures on the server. And it got to the point, it's like, well, I need to do some processing on the server because these punch clocks aren't very smart and we need some kind of centralized processing. So that was back in the days of what used to be called Indigo and became WCF. And I'm like, ah, this is this is going to solve all my problems. Soap. We need some <laughs> soap in the solution. Um, yes, indeed. And I remember we'd started building this stuff in CE and the compact.net framework. And suddenly, like, there was a new release of, of a framework. And it was, well, we'll upgrade it on the server. Oh, well, if you upgrade on the server, you also have to update it on the client. I'm like, wait, hold on. Mm -hmm. To update the <laughs> OS on the client, when I update this, I have to update this operating system, which means we actually have to send this XP device back to the manufacturer and get them to re-image the, the XP the XP embedded device. I'm like, it was it was blazingly obvious the coupling between the client and the server and the amount of pain it was going to cause me. So dug deep in the bowels of the of the SDK for um, WCF was this little example called uh, Pox. Uh, 
which was uh, plain old XML. So it was basically how to use WCF in order to just send just generic XML over the wire. And I'm like, oh, this decouples me from all of the Wizdle and Soap stuff, and I can control the message myself. So I was like, okay, well, this looks interesting. And that's when I started to hear about REST because there was a BizTalk Labs project called um, w, uh, no, uh, WCF REST. It was a very early version of WCF REST. And I was like, what is this REST thing? Uh, and I started digging around, and it just so happened that one of the people who was a very, very early advocate for the idea of REST uh, actually lives up in Ottawa. And uh, he was he was between contracts, and I pinged him, and I said, can I come and pick your brain for half a day? And he said, sure. So I drove up there, and my mind was blown. Uh, who was I, that, Daryl? Uh, a guy named Mark Baker. Uh, you, you don't okay. you don't really hear a whole lot about him these days. He got very burnt out in the whole rest versus soap wars, um, but spectacularly smart guy, and he really opened my eyes as to what rest really was and what it could do. And from that point on, I was sold, and I started changing our application uh, that we built to build to be a truly REST-based system. And when I say that, I mean like hypermedia-driven. It was a WinForms app, but truly driven dynamically by links being returned in the payload. So that's where I started to become obsessed by HTTP. And, Interesting. Uh, the rest is sort of history. <laughs> the rest is history. That's awesome. And now the so in your day job now, obviously uh, the rest frameworks exist and uh, that's more mainstream. So how do you spend your days these days at work? Well, a large percentage of my time today is spent uh, working on the SDKs for Microsoft Graph. Uh, this is one of the things that really attracted me to this particular role. Um, if you dig back through some of my GitHub repos, you'll find all kinds of experiments of the last bunch of years in how to build uh, client libraries that consume REST services in effective, dynamic ways and all the different things that you can do. Because I've always seen there really being an opportunity there. A, a lot of SDKs that... Um, are created are kind of created automatically through fairly generic tooling and I've always had this kind of opinion that they really don't do a great job um, and I, I always felt that you know they could be done better they can be more useful so when I got this opportunity hey here's a fairly small API that I could play around with and see if I can <laughs> help them build better SDKs I was like yeah I'm on that you change so, things pretty quickly in terms of the the direction too, in my opinion, like, I mean, I'm sure you had time to think before you joined the team, but um, in terms of the direction that it's going in, I'm really excited to see kind of the fruits of all that work that's going on in the well, engineering team building that. Yeah. And I've been, I've been 
really fortunate that the team has been really accepting to some of my crazy ideas. But I mean, I mean, there are ideas that have been brewing for a long time. And yeah. luckily, the one thing, the one reason why I decided to bet on HTTP back in 2005, 2006 was I was like, well, when did this last change? Oh, wait, 1998 <laughs> was the last time it changed. And then, you know, they came out with a new version of the HP specs back a couple of years ago. And it took them like five years to rewrite them. And the end result is now HP pretty much is identical to the way it was in 1998. Like there's been a few <laughs> clarifications, but it just doesn't change, which in the tech industry is just delightful because your knowledge doesn't become out of date. Um, so, yeah, the, the, lots of the things that we're trying to implement, um, just, you know, be it in caching, be it in rate limiting, be it in just dealing with redirects. I mean, the big thing three years ago was there was a new redirect code that came out, you know, 308 redirect code. So it's uh, these things are they're just low hanging fruit that we can make people's lives easier so that people on the client side don't have to. Uh, deal with it. This was one of my big revelations, I guess, a year or so ago. Is like I've spent a long time trying to teach people about HTTP and how to do things correctly, uh, and fighting in the, against the well, people really don't care. And sort of in the last year, I've kind of come to the conclusion it's really okay that they don't care. As long as somebody has built them a library that does follow the rules, then mm -hmm. people shouldn't necessarily have to care about those details. The fact that I happen to be emotional about those set of things <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean everybody needs to be. So uh, that's 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 the cool thing is we're we're getting to uh, deal with a lot of those you know how to deal with those status codes that nobody really wants to have to deal with and let's just deal with them automatically so that people can just get on with delivering value to their customers without having to go looking in arcane RFCs for exactly how things are supposed to behave. <laughs> so I have a great example of that people don't care story. So at, at an MVP summit a couple years back, they had a session on the Microsoft Graph SDK and a bunch of us mild mannered, you know, quiet types from the SharePoint space stood up and said, we don't want an SDK. Just, just give us the object models and we'll do the rest calls ourselves because you're in our way. And so uh, no one cared until we started getting 429s and then everyone all of a sudden everybody cares. <laughs> and for those who don't know, 429 is the, the throttling uh, code. So uh, uh, from my point of view, I, outside of the graph team, it's, it's great to hear that someone's thinking about helping us but not getting in the way. So that's a great thing. And is there any other examples you can think of, of things that you're doing or plan to do that would help those of us who are out in the world just calling the graph? Wanna, we just want to make a, a request and get our data and go on with our life. What well, are the kinds of things that you, you think might be helpful? Well, I mean, I mean redirects are in a kind of an obvious choice, and a lot of libraries do kind of build automatic redirects directly in there. Um, you get into some subtleties with redirects insofar as if you redirect to a location that's a different host, it's probably not a good idea to be leaking the authorization header to that other host. So there's some subtleties there. But one, one of the examples that I, I kind of like is the number of times. See, I, I I spent quite a lot of time talking to people about API design, and I actually I sit on the API re uh, design review for Graph APIs, and I did the same thing when I was over in the Azure uh, space for API design for Azure services, and the number of times of people 
a number of times I've heard people have this debate about, ooh, when we redo a search for something and we get a response, should we return a 200 with an empty array? Should we return a 200 with an empty body? Or should we return a 204, which is to, uh, no content? And I've seen people, you know, they've started up with one decision, then later on somebody said, oh, we need to change this so that it's now a 204. Oh, we can't do that because it's a breaking change. Well, conceptually, all three of those scenarios mean the same thing. And a client should be smart enough to know that if it gets a 200 with an empty body and we're expecting some kind of array, well, just return an empty array. If it isn't an adjacent array with no elements in it, just return an empty array. If it's a 204, just return an empty array. It doesn't matter. Like, and and a, a, an API designer should be able to change those kind of things. Um, so many client libraries, they'll, they'll sit there and they'll enumerate explicitly uh, which status codes uh, they support in a response. And then all of a sudden, a new status code appears, and all of a sudden, they throw up their arms and throw an exception. Well, that's not how it's supposed to work. I mean, let's give you a, a funky example. Let's say I suddenly decided I want to start returning a 203 response code. And nobody returns 203 because nobody really knows what it is. It happens to mean, here's your content, but it's non-authoritative. It means it came from somewhere that isn't the original source of the data. And maybe somebody has some funky reason why some particular client wants to know where that data came from. But nobody's going to start using 203 because they know nobody's actually written a client code that will actually take that status code into account. But if you actually read the, the, the HP spec, what it says that you should do is if you see a status code that you don't recognize, basically round it up to the nearest 100. So if you see a 203, just treat it like it's 200. Don't fail on it, just treat it like it's If you see a 417 and you have no idea what 417 means, just treat it like a 400. That's the right thing to do. And I have to blame to an extent uh, <laughs> things like the API description languages, the, the open API formerly known as Swagger, uh, they kind of exacerbated this problem uh, of um, basically explicitly saying these are the status codes that could return from a particular um, API. And then people went out and they co-gened or they wrote code that explicitly said, oh, well, the status, the, 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 the spec, the description language says that these are the only status codes that can actually be returned. So then they go and they write and they hard code against those particular things. But that it, it just doesn't work like that. HTTP has this concept of being a layered architecture. So between you and the server you're calling, there could be a whole bunch of other intermediaries that end up returning other status codes. So even though your API has said these are the only status codes that could return, there are other intermediaries that could return different ones. So you can't just assume uh, that there's a limited set. And that's one of the things that I jumped up and down about when I actually joined the, because um, I work on the open API spec now, um, I kind of said, look, we have to make it clear to people consuming this that an open API description is not exhaustive. It says what can happen. It doesn't say what cannot happen. Um, so you, when you see an open API description, these are the things that we're specifically saying will happen, but don't assume that other status codes are not going to come back. So, and How do you find that relationship between being on that foundation for kind of open API uh, swagger 
and now building an SDK on top of, uh, you know, a HTTP API that is, you know, essentially quite sophisticated now in terms of the different services and products that are being called on it. Well, I mean, one of the main benefits that an open API description or any API description provides is to help tooling. And uh, whether it be to helping to generate uh, skeleton reference documentation, whether it is to help you generate an SDK, these are very useful things people are using these descriptions for. I mean, that's one of the reasons I got involved was because so many people have derived a lot of value uh, from the the Swagger tooling and the open API descriptions. And it's kind of, well, I I, I didn't initially, I was not a big fan of it because coming back from from a hypermedia world where things are automatically discovered and messages are self-descriptive, you can sort of argue that you just don't need it. Um, so a part of me was, well, I, I need to know more about why, what it is, the value that is being delivered from here. And if I get involved, then maybe I can help us bridge the gap between these kind of static descriptions and the hypermedia dynamic world. And we have made some good progress um, in that direction. And it's, so Graph's interesting in that it's it's a little bit of an outlier in that it doesn't use Open API as a description format. It uses a different description format. It uses uh, CSDL, uh, which is conceptual schema description language, which is the underlying description language for um, OData. Um, but... And it's also angle brackets instead of curly brackets, which immediately makes it uncool, right? <laughs> the fact that it's tools that consume it, not humans really consume it's, it's it. So still, yeah, yeah, it's just, just, just not nearly cool. And you know, the angle brackets they get caught when they go over the wire, so they're slower than the JSON curly brackets as they go over the wire. <laughs> they flow faster. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. So, oh but, my goodness! But again, I mean, it's just a different way of describing it. They're they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, we've done a lot of work uh, in order to create an open API description of uh, the the OData CSDL description. Um, so it they they are doing similar things. They just look at the world in a slightly different perspective. Um, the CSDL looks at things more in terms of entities and the relationships between entities and the paths that you use to get at them, you have to infer those paths based on the relationships. Whereas mm-hmm. Open API is a lot more prescriptive and it says these are exactly the paths that you are allowed to use and uh, these are the parameters that you must path, whereas CSDL and OData is a lot more convention-based. And that's why the Open API description that we post in GitHub is like a gazillion lines long. It's rather large, yes, because yeah. it, it basically walks that graph and tries to find every path through it. And right. I, I, in our last iteration, I think we've significantly reduced it because we've removed some kind of redundant paths. And I think there's still a little bit more work to do to eliminate some additional redundant paths. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we're just basically trying to find every uh, the minimum set of paths that you need in order to find everything that's on that graph so that we can and keep that open API description smaller. And I think that announcement went a little bit under the radar at Ignite because there were so many other things that the graph announced, but um, the open API document is actually available in GitHub if you want to use it for 
a variety of different purposes. And I know one thing at a night came up a lot was people using Power Apps and Microsoft Flow and wanting to use those Swagger Open API descriptions to then easily plug these things into those uh, products. So if you're doing that stuff, it's well worth a look. Yeah, and I mean the the goal is to have that open API description accessible directly on the web. We still have a bit of um, um, a a mismatch, you know, from a size perspective. Like you're working with Power Apps and Flow, you really don't want to consume the entire set of right. uh, resources on the graph. You only want to mm-hmm. access some subset. So we we've got some work to do is to figure out how to maybe subset that uh, open API description so that it is more consumable in that uh, for for those power tools. But it's definitely work that's going on. There's a lot of smarter people thinking about how do we fix this. Uh, and right now, oh, oh. like you can get to the CDSL with the dollar metadata on any of the endpoints. Yes. And I found one recently, and I think it was Darren Spector showed me this, was the uh, dollar what if. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's, that's nice. Very which cool. Which is super useful. Yeah, so I mean, in order to understand the value that you got to understand a little bit about the way the graph works, right? The gra- a big part of the graph is a gateway that sits in front of all of the services, and it looks at the incoming request and tries to figure out who in the back end, in our many microservices, which one of them is going to satisfy that request, or if there are multiple of them that are going to satisfy the request. And uh, the what if actually gives you a little bit of a view into how that sausage is made and mm-hmm. what calls uh, go out on the back end and how we aggregate that data together. And that's that's one of the values that CSDL brings because it is this kind of declarative data structure of the, the entities that are being returned. It has that metadata as to, or, or attached to that metadata is where does this data come from? How do we glue these things together uh, in nice, coherent things so that on the front end, a person gets to deal with a user and they don't need to care about the fact that the data in the user is actually composed from a bunch of different services on the back end? Well, you know, that gets back to what developers care about and what they don't care about. In all my teachings and consultings and my work, no one really cares to do dollar what if other than oh that's a neat little trick right it's a great demo trick and it's somewhat interesting at at one level but at at some point if i'm trying to get some work done i don't know that all that matters and and your point about the open api i i really care about the data elements that are being returned i don't know that i care so much about the http transport stuff right it just just make it happen right if something goes wrong tell me something went wrong and how do i fix it so i think that uh um while there's a lot of clamoring for this open API stuff, I sometimes wonder what the value is in most scenarios, right? Uh-oh, grenade thrown. Yeah. yeah, well, and it's not a criticism. I mean, like if, I, if I'm doing flow or power apps and I need something out of the graph, I need the, the, the document. But if the SharePoint connector now includes things that I am doing, I don't need the open API document anymore, right? I just I can use their connector. So, so I think it is a fine balance between what's what's value for most devs and what's value for for Microsoft, right? Yeah, and I mean it, it, it's very much a piece of glue, right? It, it's the thing that allows you to allow systems to talk to each other, and what you want is for those systems to talk to each other. And Open API is just a machine-readable description. Um, 
that allows you to enable that. There is the other way of looking at it and something that I, I've done a number of talks on what people are calling um, contract first API design. And the idea being there is, I mean, many people who work with OpenAPI, they'll use tools that will just auto-generate the OpenAPI description from uh, their implementation. So they've created, if you're in the .NET world, you've probably created an API and you may have heard of Swashbuckle as a tool that will auto-generate stuff. There's a tool called NSWAG. It also does the same thing. Um, and the similar tools exist across the different platforms and languages. But I... What I think a lot of people have spent some time getting used to those API description languages have found is you can actually use it the other way around where you start by firing up your favorite code editor and just sitting there and typing an API description using that language and saying, okay, look, these are the resources that I need. Um, the, these are the parameters that I'm going to have to pass. This is the shape of the body. Because when it comes to actually specking out the details of that API, it's quicker to actually write that API description than it is to go off and write the implementation. Um, and it, it's the nice thing is it's a language that crosses barriers, right? If you've got JavaScript developers talking to, uh, on the client side, talking to ASP.NET people on the server side, you can talk in, in open API and say, look, this is the API that we're going to provide you. And there are tools out there that will go out and generate a mock server. So all of a sudden the client side developers can go and start consuming that mock API immediately whilst the server developers are actually working on doing an implementation. And, and you can have a faster feedback loop going, hey, that API that you gave me, uh, it's missing this, 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 and this. And you go back to that uh, description document and you can continue editing, editing directly in there. And that becomes the source of truth for your API design. And I mean, that is actually, that's how uh, all the Azure API management services uh, work out there. If you actually go to, it's a GitHub repo called, I think, Azure-REST-Specs. All of the Azure services all have an open API description uh, for them, and that's how teams go and they do they do a pull request against those descriptions to say, this is how we're changing the API, and there's a review board that sits and reviews it. And we do something very similar over on the graph side, but we just do it using CSDL um, and other documentation as a review process. So it's actually is a can be a useful way of doing API design, uh, as well as just a, a, a tool f for gluing things together. Yeah, we that's were doing solid this. gold advice right there. Solid gold. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what I think developers need to hear is that this this is why, right? It's not necessarily the down in the weeds mechanics of just generate code and forget, but this is the, the value. So that's great. Thank you. Yeah, we did that uh, when I was in Western Australia working for um, there was the Western Australian government there, and. There was a team building the API, and at the time it was a WDSL that they were writing the spec for. And then we'd generate stubs off that while they were actually building the API so that we can build the front end. Um, and at the time, like that was extremely kind of bleeding edge, and a lot of developers really weren't bought onto it in the sense of this kind of very highly service-orientated architecture as opposed to kind of building all in one stack or client-server. And um, after doing that project, we, I was super impressed with the architect in terms of 
um, how we kind of went about it and pushed it through and evangelized that between the different engineering teams and kind of stayed true to this is no, this is what we need to go do. And it's amazing to kind of hear that again from the case of, you know, almost 15 years later of this is, this is how we're doing it today with open API spec. And yeah. obviously we've, we've moved on a lot now with the notion of Git and that was all done back in the day and source safe and was an awful thing every time that spec <laughs> document changed trying to merge xml so uh, it's good to see we've moved on a little bit in that space yeah and and a lot of people will do that kind of comparison and say oh yeah open api is just whistled all over again um yeah. and the thing the the difference is is whistle was significantly harder to work with um insofar as it tried to. It was much more ambitious in what it tried to do. Insofar as it it asked you to describe that interface in a completely generic way. Here are the messages. Here are the operations, and then as a second step, do the binding to the transport. And depending on what transport you're using, you had different bindings to say, okay, this is how this message fits into this particular transport. And just dealing with things like XSD as a as a modeling language is mm -hmm. just significantly more complex. Yeah. Than like for example, JSON schema. The big difference with Open API is it specifically is there to describe how to do an HTTP interface. It it is opinionated on this is the protocol that we're going to use. So that layer of indirection isn't there, which dramatically reduces the complexity when it comes to actually describing that that interface. So it's a lot easier to do. I mean. Doing contract first in Wizdle, hats off. That that's, uh, that's well. It wasn't just Wizdle, right? Stuff. It was WS Star. You ended up with trying to boil the ocean, mm. right? I mean, oh, here's how I'm going to describe the entire internet before you write any code. That, that yeah, is, yeah, yeah. WS Star. Well, <laughs> let's just not go there. Yeah, we're right. <laughs> so I I got to throw one. Well, it's not Paul, but maybe his boss. His new boss wears under the the bus a little. So uh, Wes was at a. Oh, I think it was a dev kitchen here recently and um, was questioning, you know, well, we don't use SDKs at all. And I'm sure your experience is now, Paul, being on the team, um, you know, you, you write and code directly against the REST interface or HTTP interface, depending on what uh, level of argument you want to get into with Daryl, um, on calling the Microsoft graph. And when I had that discussion with him, I was like, yeah, they're extremely valid points. And so I went back to Daryl and said, hey, look, you know, how would you try and convince where's because it's in our best interest to for everyone to use the SDK really to to allow us to have a little bit more control on making sure people are doing the right thing when they call it how how would you uh, not argue but debate with where's on the other side of this of uh, why the SDK would be useful for his team to consume rather than kind of essentially running his own little magic helper classes to call call the graph yeah, and and this has been the pitch that I've been making with our own team and with the larger extended team since I've joined in as far as a lot of the way people have approached SDKs in the past is we code gen this big blob of code and it's supposed to create this really nice and easy, simple way of you just treat the uh, API as a bunch of objects that you go and uh, grab the object and it will magically do all the HTTP goop under the scenes for you and you never have to think about it and it's all awesome and wonderful and 
it it tends to break down at a certain point. People do mm-hmm. need under certain scenarios to get under the covers and access particular HTTP headers, and they want to do things a little bit differently for some reason. And what I've want pushed us towards is getting away from this all or nothing scenario, where as soon as you do need to get under the cover. It's like, oh, it just all kind of falls apart and doesn't work anymore, uh, which is why people end up saying, oh, screw it. I'm just going to do it myself and not worry about using the SDK itself. So we've we've started to try and introduce a bunch of architectural seams into the SDK itself and with a little bit of refactoring and sort of say, look, these pieces are optional. Right. You can if you want to use our fancy fluent request builder to build uh, request messages, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. If you want to use a fancy fluent request builder and then get a native request object and then use a call to a native HP client library, you can also do that. We, we want to be able to use, allow people to use it in pieces and get in between the various pieces of our components to, to introduce their own logic, their own layers, their own logging, their, whatever uh, additional behavior they want to add there. And I, I think one of the most important architectural pieces that is enabling us to be able to add value to folks like Wes is this notion of a, a middleware pipeline. And most people are more familiar with middleware pipelines over on the server side. Uh, Back in, I was about to say back in the Ruby days, but that's unfair because we still actually have a lot of people using Ruby. Um, (laughs) But uh, Ruby and Rack uh, was a very popular uh, architecture for pieces of middleware uh, on the server side. Um, Python has a thing which I think they pronounce Whiskey, which is the web services gateway interface uh, in Python. Um, in Node, there's Express.js has this notion of being able to have little pieces of middleware. And uh, in ASP.NET Core, they're just middleware. And when they actually built um, the HP client uh Six, five, six years ago in the .NET space, they introduced this notion of what they call a delegating handler class, which allows you to build a pipeline on the client. So the important aspect is you get to use the native .NET framework library, uh, HB client class, and just make calls as you always have. But then you can plug in this pipeline of extra behavior behind the scenes. So you can use that familiar interface for making the request that that just just feels natural that you've used a hundred times before, but we can add in those capabilities to handle those nasty 429s, to handle the 503s and the 504s and the, the, um, the, the, redirects. Uh, We can add in mechanisms to do the logging so that we know how to set the automatic uh, client request ID on there and whatever other graph specific goop that will help you get have a better experience, we can insert that into the pipeline. And we can do it across the languages. Um, we're doing it also in Java. We actually had to implement our own thing in Objective-C because we couldn't find uh, a good middleware pipeline in Objective-C. Um, but it's the same pattern that we're applying across all languages. In fact, all of the architectural patterns that we're doing, we're trying to apply them consistently across all of the, the different language SDKs. 
ways. Again, we will try and create as natural a feeling library for the whatever language people are working in. But when it comes to the higher level architecture, we're using the same patterns. Because again, we're making HP requests, no matter what language it is. They aren't fundamentally different. Uh, so we, we can use very similar patterns. Uh, in order to achieve these goals. And those people who don't want to use these very um, simplified interfaces and want to use native uh, uh, requests or native libraries to be able to make the request, they'll be able to continue doing that uh, while still being able to take advantage of a bunch of the, the value that we've added to the process. So hopefully we'll get to a point where even people who likewise who don't like SDKs that were there in the past will still be able to get value from us because we should be able to do it. I, I'm glad to hear the, the architectural seems bit. It, and now, this is not another landmine, but there are cases when dealing with the graph where what I need isn't there. Uh, I'm looking at you, SharePoint content types, right? So, <laughs> so some point I need to add, I need to change the request header to say uh, Apple, OData equals verbose as part of the, the accept header type of thing. So, so I'm glad to see that the, that's uh, on your radar because, again, sometimes you need to dip into that lower level just to do a little tweak and send it off. So, so what's the current state of the SDK. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about things that are you know, on the roadmap, and and as Jeremy said, Ignite had a ton of announcements around a lot of things. Can you give us kind of a state of the state, if you will, and and what what what's your release frequency and and what things might be coming? Sure. Um, well, we have a couple of kind of major efforts that are going on. One is 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 all these architectural things around uh, the libraries. Uh, the other is about our delivery pipeline. And we've done a lot of work just recently in order to uh, allow us to both release more reliably, more quickly, and also release SDKs for the beta uh, endpoint. Because currently we're only doing, primarily we're only doing SDKs for the V1. Uh, and that's not good. We, we, we need to be able to provide this support for the beta, for the beta endpoints too. So... Uh, we are going to be starting to release V1s on a monthly cadence. So hopefully towards the end of the month, uh, each month you'll see an updated SDK uh, across the languages. And probably not this month, may, maybe the end of November, we might try pushing out more beta SDKs. Uh, that would be that would be a, a optimistic, uh, thought on the part of the PM here, sitting here, who's not the one who actually has to do the work. Um, and the beta SDK has introduced a few kind of concepts that aren't in V1 because there's more complex API shapes in the beta that haven't made it the V1, right? Like there's a little bit of more work in the generation. It's not just an easy case of just changing it to point of beta and click the button. We should take that offline, Jeremy. I'm not aware of such things. As far as I'm concerned, it's just... Well, then why can't you just change the beta and click the button then? Just out can. the beta. You can. Okay, ship it. <laughs> the, uh, part, part of the challenge, I mean, because we, we do, we ship uh, uh, a beta version of PHP. We ship the types for JavaScript. As beta, so we are already generating. I, part of the problem was there was a, a certain amount of manual invent, intervention required in order to get that thing spit out, and uh, it was time-consuming and 
uh, painful. Uh, we've been able to grab all of those pieces together, um, and we are still in the process of gluing all those pieces together. And we will have a tool uh, which we which named Typewriter as the tool to spit out uh, the set of um, generated classes. So the library will end up being two things, right? The core, which is all the HTTPisms, all the rate limiting, all those things that are nothing to do with generated code, will be the core in each in each language. And then there's the generated stuff, the request builders, and and the models, uh, which are the generated, which typewriter will spit out. Uh, and I'm hoping very soon that that will be available as a chocolatey package to be able to people can download and they can generate their own SDKs uh, off the metadata. Um, that sounds great. That so sounds that, great. that's that, that's the goal. Uh, just to go back to Paul's question about the state of the architecture, like we've uh, the .NET, you can now introduce your own pieces of middleware. There's a retry middleware handler there. We haven't actually hooked it up so that you get it out of the box yet. Uh, we're building a client factory mechanism that will create pre-configured HP clients with all the middleware uh, hooked up. Uh, that is currently in a pull request in the Objective-C. Uh, we're working on the middleware in Java. We've been doing things in Java land like um, uh, a content object for batch requests. Uh, it's a bit of a pain being able to send batch requests. So we've created an object model where you can basically just take regular requests and add them into a batch request object and then send that batch request object up. Uh, so there, there's a, we've been doing that in both Java and JavaScript. So there's a variety of different pieces of the architectural components that we've been slowly uh, working on across all of the languages. And our hope is over the next couple of months is just to bring all of them up to a certain level, though they all have these various architectural components. And, and then we'll start to, trying to address more advanced capabilities as we move forward. And, and people can follow along in the Microsoft Graph org, github.com area as well. If they just do the search for SDK, they'll see all the SDKs and they can see all the pull requests and changes coming in. Yeah, and, and I will be attempting to do more blog posts, just keeping blogging, people... Blogging, blogging, Yes, yes. Even though some of my blog posts don't seem to say like we're doing anything and just seem to waffle <laughs> on about just ideas, some of them will actually be reporting real progress that we're making. See, I've, folks, been that, I've been listen. watching that feed. I haven't seen anything come through just yet. But so, That's because we've been uh, working excellent. hard at delivering things. Excellent. Uh, I, that is all good. <laughs> we've been working out how to try and sign into our WordPress mm -hmm. platform properly. Uh, I'm like Jerry Seinfeld. I'm just making observations. I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying this was a great blog post. I just didn't say much. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to fill us in. This has been very enlightening, and I think developers um, should take heed and, and certainly look forward to the, these ideas that you have planned. And I'm certainly ready to crack open the uh, some of those SDKs in the beta layer. I, I have I have some work to do on, on our product that needs to tear apart the patient a bit, so dropping in an SDK would be a good time soon. So it would be nice to see it roll out quick. What's the um, what's the best way to keep in touch with you, Daryl? I know you're you're act very active on Twitter, like I am. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Daryl underscore Miller, and it has my normal face. So <laughs> it's pretty much you're the not, same. You've not changed it to the Octo 
my Opto thing or whatever it was that the mm. avatars everyone's been posting this week. No, no, there's no emoji, no momoji, no <laughs> cartoonified. It's just you you get what you see. And you guys have a podcast as well, when say guys. Ha. Huh. We 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 occasionally <laughs> get together and uh, myself and Glenn Block uh, from Auth Zero, uh, we have a thing we call In the Mood for HTTP. Um, and uh, we rant and rave about a variety of things <laughs> HTTP. There's a YouTube channel, there's a, there's a uh, Twitter account called In the Mood for HTTP, with the four yeah, being I'll, I'll make sure four. that all those are in the show notes so people can so. follow you if they're all into the, that level of talk. Yes. Yes. I, I've I've listened to a handful and I I enjoy it. It's great to. I, I think a, a developer really should understand or at least at least be aware of all these things that you're talking about, right? You, we don't want the most stupid denominator just doing IntelliSense type coding. So it it certainly, I found it very helpful. So I'm glad you're doing it. Keep yeah. it up. I mean, it's great you're in the team, honestly, Daryl, because I'm learning so much that I wouldn't have learned without you being here. So um, we do these kind of weekly PM meetings, Paul and. Um, Daryl kind of went into detail yesterday about caching or caching um, on kind of HTTP calls and how we're integrating that stuff into SDK. So it was, I mean, it's just awesome that having you in the team and with your background and experience. So. Hey, what was that status code again? 203? I need to remember. If you're doing caching, yeah, I should right. remember. Yeah, I learn something every day with Daryl <laughs> as he pulls these things out. He must just sit at home reading these academic <laughs> books about HTTP all the time. <laughs> Uh, sounds so, well, great. I appreciate you coming on, mate. And um, we uh, we will definitely get you back on when you've got some more news around some of the new kind of architecture and the SDKs that we can talk about in more detail. No, it's been a blast, and I'm absolutely enjoying the work that we're doing together. So it's yeah, it's been looking fun. forward to a lot more. <laughs> yeah, cool. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at m365devpodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 